0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Brad Lips joins us to discuss his new book freedom movement. It's past, present, and future. This new publication originates from his perspective of 20 years working with organizations in the U.S. and with roughly 100 countries around the world. He's going to provide some analysis on the freedom movement's past, share some stats on where we are today, and give insight on what will determine the future. But before we bring him on, a little about Brad. Brad Lips is the chief executive officer of Atlas Network, which increases opportunity and prosperity by strengthening a global network of independent civil society organizations that promote individual freedom and remove barriers to human flourishing. In the decades since he became CEO, the budget of Atlas Network has more than doubled, and the scope of its programs have extended worldwide. He has spoken on five continents, on solutions to poverty, and his work has been published in National Review Online, Forbes, Fox News, American Spectator, Real Clear Politics, among others. Brad, it's a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today.
1: I'm glad to join you.
0: So I think we should just start with the basic question, which is how do you define the freedom movement? So those who haven't heard this actual term or phrase before, what are you referring to?
1: Yeah, I thought that we should really just own this phrase that um, I always feel a little awkward talking about in front of those who uh, aren't part of this community. Um, But this is the, the way that a lot of us talk about our careers. Um, those of us who work in the think tank movement or in academia, uh, with a real, purposeful um, mission to explore ideas of, sort of classical liberalism and free markets and individual liberty. Um, a lot of us are devoted to an ideological project, and um, and I think it's important for us to uh, sort of reveal what our intentions are and and talk about how we make this project more effective in winning over converts, um, especially during a time in, in human history when I think that the, uh, the forces that are kind of arrayed against um, uh, the ideals of individual liberty are, are growing stronger. So I think that we need to really be purposeful in how we um, take this cause uh, to a new level.
0: And I thought we would maybe have you start by talking about the global freedom movement. So I think often people who are in the States think about freedom in this country and what it means to us. But how have you worked? How has Atlas Network worked with the freedom movement globally? What, what does that look like?
1: Yes, yeah, so I have a sort of a unique vantage point um, as the, the head of Atlas Network, an organization that I joined more than 20 years ago. And um, and Beverly, it's kind of funny because you know I kind of came to the organization uh, very focused on uh, the the way that U.S. political battles were going and public policy issues were being discussed. But I found that it was really incredible to be seeing the perspectives of people from abroad who were dealing with the unintended consequences of big government in a way that was just uh, even more pernicious than what we see here in the U.S. And sometimes those perspectives, I that are really helpful for um, sort of resetting um, conversations. Because often in the U.S., um, when people talk about policy issues, you kind of size up, you know, what tribe is this perspective coming from? And I think that uh, one of the great benefits of uh, working with so many people from around the world is that um, you start to look afresh at things that are just common sense, and people don't start to wonder – you know, whether you're on Team Red or Team Blue, um, and, uh, and that's a very healthy thing. So, you know, Atlas Network works with organizations that are sort of similar to um, the Cato Institute or Heritage Foundation or, or IWS, uh, but are located all around the world. You know, about a third of our partners are in the U.S., but that leaves another 300 or so that's scattered among nearly 100 other countries and they're doing the same critical work that um you know the, the think tank movement in the u s is, is all about um you know trying to change public policy in a direction where there's more opportunity for individuals to use their own skills and and not you know uh, find themselves hindered by over regulation over taxation and other infringements that government imposes.
0: And I know that in my work and when I've partnered with Atlas Network I love the work that you all do. It's always been so inspiring to work with groups that do come from places where they have very little freedom, um uh, but yet they're champions and they're fighting for the causes they they care about for the people in their country. And I always find it interesting that there are so many things that unite us within the freedom movement. So in your work, what would you say are the pillars that the freedom movement is built on? What are those fundamentals that no matter where you live and the different circumstances and the different barriers that you face, that these are the different pillars that we stand on if we care about freedom in our own countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of those pillars are you know, individual liberty, uh, respect for property rights, a belief in free markets and free exchange, and um and equality under the rule of law, and I think that really a common denominator, which is increasingly part of the language we use, is that it's all about human dignity. I think that too often um, think tanks get sort of lost in you know macroeconomic statistics and so on, but a lot of the the policy battles that we care most deeply about are really about just respecting the individuality of of human beings and uh, and, and many of the people who are the most marginalized in our, in our societies are um, victimized by by government. And uh, sometimes they're um, uh, kind of uh, put in the front of, of parades for, for bigger government because it's an assumption that they can't help themselves and they need favors from some redistributionist scheme led by a benevolent politician. Invariably, those schemes don't work. Those schemes get politicized and the um and they really deny the the agency of of you know um, of fellow humans <laughs> and uh the the good news that we get to preach is that you know people all over the world are are working to better their condition, and if we can just do the modest uh, work of removing the barriers in their path that is can can be transformative and I think that that's sort of the the common denominator between. Working for educational choice, working to restore uh, property rights in, in developing countries that don't always have them, working to uh, um, protect the uh, ability to work in the, the legal um, formal economy, so that you're not um, regularly victimized by corrupt police that are going to shake you down. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, these are the, the you know the, the common denominator here is a respect for the individual.
0: And Atlas Network works with numerous organizations worldwide, as we mentioned. What would be maybe a powerful example that you can share of how, when these pillars are respected, that these think tanks can actually make a lot of change for people? What What has stood out to you as some of the most maybe a couple powerful examples that you've seen in your twenty years in working in the freedom movement globally?
1: Sure. You know, some of the examples that, that come to mind. I was just mentioning. The um, this idea of being able to to work without being victimized by um, the police, and you know, um, today we have a, a very different conversation about uh, public safety and the role of police in the U. S. But in countries like India, uh, where a lot of the population works as you know street vendors, there's this um, this sort of common understanding that the size of your business is about as uh, about the size of your your the wingspan of your arms because you need to be able to grab the corners of your blanket and take your inventory away. Because um, if uh, if you don't have a legal right to do work there um, that the police can confiscate your goods, fine you and, and sort of shake you down. And all you're doing is pursuing your livelihood. Well, there's an organization in New Delhi, India, that has for for several years um, taken on this cause of getting, legal protection and creating a you know, an avenue for the, the street vendor community to assert their rights and to be protected from that kind of abuse that comes from police that just see these individuals who are really among the poorest of the poor as, um, as victims that they can shake down with impunity. And that's the kind of thing that we love to see our partners um, stand up against. And, and it's been remarkable to see some of the success that this organization in India has had to normal people trying to create a livelihood, a chance to succeed.
0: And I want to go back to the history of the think tank. You've used that term before. I am going to have you define it. What is think tank to you? What does that mean? Because you're talking about actual actions that have taken place. So this isn't just a bunch of smart people thinking about things. It's people actually trying to put it into action. So tell me what a think tank is. And also, where where did the think tank movement start? How long has this think tank freedom movement been around?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the think tanks are traditionally understood as you know those organizations that are trying to uh, move the public policy conversation in a direction that will will solve problems for people. And for those of us who believe in these classical liberal ideals of individual liberty and free enterprise and limited government, um, this movement, uh, in some ways, traces its origins back to a conversation that the man that uh, um, eventually would found Atlas Network that he had um, right after World War II. He was a, a Brit. Um, he fought in the Royal Air Force and saw his brother, um, who was also a pilot, shot down and, and killed in front of him. And then he came upon uh, the book, The Road to Serfdom, which was uh, published um, there in 1944-45 by Friedrich Hayek. And it was a really influential book. And when this Royal Air Force pilot, Anthony Fisher, uh, happened upon it, he realized that there was a really um, a cogent uh, diagnosis of the problems that were then ailing Britain. You know, the the war had been won, but Britain was turning in the direction of uh, a Labour government, in the direction of socialism, talking about you know planning the economic recovery, the way they planned the war, and this way of thinking was really counter to the tradition of freedom and individualism that Antony had thought he'd been fighting for. So. He thought about um, reaching out to that professor who has been uh, in, uh, in London and he said, Professor Hayek, I'm, I want to go into politics. You know, you've diagnosed the problem. I'm going to set it right um, by uh, having a successful political career. And it was uh, Hayek's um, uh, comment that sort of changed uh, Anthony Fisher's life because he said, you know, no, you're not. Um, if you go into politics, you're either going to be incredibly unsuccessful because you're out of step with the times Or you're going to be successful and you'll get yourself elected, but you're not going to have an impact because politicians need to conform to what is considered politically possible at any given time. And we need a a bigger project, a project that can change what is considered politically possible. And um, Fisher kind of stewed on that um, advice for 10 years or so while he became pretty successful in business. And then... um, decided that he would launch what became the first free market think tank in the UK, an organization called the Institute of Economic Affairs that um, explicitly decided it wasn't trying to come up with politically uh, relevant um, uh, proposals. It wanted to change what was considered politically relevant. But it was the, uh, the organization that first started talking about um, uh, privatizing what had been nationalized. And when Margaret Thatcher came to power, in the late '70s, she said, "You know, it was this organization that created the intellectual foundations for the reforms that she was then able to implement." As socialism had um, uh, had taken the UK in a dangerous direction, and, uh, and she was able to lead the country to the incredible rebound that it had in the 1980s by implementing a lot of ideas that had come from that particular think tank. So. the the movement of think tanks has evolved a great deal, which is part of what I wanted to discuss in this book. Um, But the the foundations, I think, are still really important for us to pay attention to. And that's this idea that you need to be nonpartisan, willing to talk to all parties, that you're not governed by what can be necessarily achieved um, in the very short term, but you're standing up for principles that kind of stretch what's considered politically uh, saleable at any particular time, and that um, there's uh, at the end of the day this real commitment to um, uh, to, to principles that are going to be um, they're going to re- remain uh, uh, the same through the the organization's history that you're not beholden to any particular party or corporate interest that you're legitimately and authentically devoted to ideas.
0: And you mentioned that term socialism. So we in the United States have heard that term more and more. There seems to be more popularity towards it. Now, people have questioned whether or not people understand the true definition of socialism. But do you think that in the United States specifically, that think tanks, the freedom movement, have an uphill battle ahead when it comes to the popularity of socialism today?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an, an interesting, interesting question, Beverly. I do think that a lot of the popularity behind, you know, socialism is due to a really shallow understanding of what people hope that means. And I think they hope that it means sharing and and getting along. Um, but you know, if you look at the experiences that various countries have had with socialism through the years, you, you know that um, that's not the whole story, and that uh, that those stories invariably end. Um, and bankruptcy and often with authoritarianism and violence. Um, So it's going to be very interesting. And I think that it is a great challenge to all of us who work in this field and who care about the principles of liberty to think about, you know, how do we build a a, a more vibrant movement that can counter some of the things that are attractive about um, about socialism to young people? Part of my hope is that... um, what we're seeing today is a, a really interesting sort of reshuffling of political alliances. And I think that, you know, on, on the left, you do see sort of a, um, a bifurcation of sort of the more traditional, um, maybe Quintonian, uh, types. And then the, the hard left, that I think the the Antifa folks are most symbolic of, and that the cancel culture on campus is symbolic of, And I don't think that those two communities really sit together very well, except that maybe they don't like the guy in the Oval Office. So I'm really hopeful that we can project um, that we are a movement that's really about common sense and about um, traditional um, uh, liberal values like free speech. And that's not necessarily where some of the hard left folks are now lining up. So Friedrich Hayek, back in that book, The Road to Serfdom, dedicated it to socialists of all parties, and he didn't mean that ironically. He meant he was willing to talk to, uh, to anyone uh, of goodwill and that he thought he had a message that was important, um, in part because he believed that they were of goodwill and, um, and really one of the best for society and that were just mistaken about where their favorite solutions were going to lead. So you know, I, I again, think that it's really incumbent upon us to, to walk the walk and show that our movement is really for the equality of all people. And, um, and hopefully we can make that case as uh, the the other um extremes um reveal their ugly sides as we're increasingly seeing from day to day
0: so when we and by the way people can get the pdf version of freedom movement it's past present and future so if people are interested in looking at this do go to atlasnetwork.org you can download the pdf version there but i'm curious from the lessons that you talk about in the book and just your experience and also the history behind it, what would you say are some specific things that people can do or that think tanks can do in the United States if we're concerned about socialism and we want to promote the freedom movement? So if it's not about political parties, what are the steps that people can take?
1: Well, I guess it, uh, what I would recommend is uh, thinking real hard about where you um what policy issues are most relevant to um, the opportunities that are denied to too many people. I think that the one of the, um, the, the issues that has been for a long time a part of our freedom movement but has never been more uh, salient is the school choice movement, especially in the wake of COVID-19 and what we're now seeing with a lot of schools um, refusing to, to open and, and really failing and providing good virtual educations. You're seeing that, um, that those with, with means are finding other alternatives. Those who uh, cannot are seeing this um, you know, education gap widen because they simply lack um, other options. So things like school choice, I think, are absolutely pivotal at this time. And for, for whatever reason, I think that we have done a poor job at different times. at really showing that we are standing with you know, um, people from low-income communities of all backgrounds. And I think that it's a, a time to get involved in what your local think tanks are doing to to broaden those opportunities. Um, one of the epiphanies that I've had over the the last you know, several months, Beverly, is that um, you know I, I've always believed that you know mantra that. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to voice, and you know, I know that uh, John F. Kennedy used it in a, a speech with this idea that, um, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And uh, and I truly believe that, yes, economic growth is an important um, uh, goal for you know, all societies, and that does create opportunities, especially for those at the the lowest rungs in the, in the socioeconomic ladder. But I think that if that's our entire answer to the question of you know what are you going to do for the poor, you're you're um, you're kind of tone deaf to the real needs, and you're also kind of um, presenting an answer that doesn't respect the agency of those in low income communities that are showing a lot of initiative but are finding themselves blocked. So I love that a lot of our think tank partners here in the U.S. have taken on occupational licensing, which creates you know huge barriers to people having simple jobs, you know, interior design and uh, hair braiding and and the whatnot where um, the licensing regime is really just a a measure to keep people out of those professions and to inflate the wages to those that have already been licensed. It's it's, um, great to be able to stay on the side of of people of modest means who are pursuing the American dream that has found big government in the way. So the more that we can roll up our sleeves and work on projects like that, show that our movement is for everyone. I think that's part of the secret for uh, restoring a real faith in the American dream.
0: And so then that leads to my final question is for those out there who are concerned about the direction of America and feel that freedom is eroding in this country. What do you say to them? Do you have hope for the future based on what you've seen in the past or based on your perception of where things are today? What insight do you have um, that can help people think about the future and where the United States is heading?
1: Yeah, I guess that the the, the good thing is that we've had dark days in the past and indeed, modern freedom movement was born in one of those dark days after World War II when the intellectual consensus was certainly in favor of, of socialism. And um, and there were a lot of challenges to the international um, order. Um, we we survived that and uh, saw big victories with the the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think the part of what we have to keep in mind is that um, big breakthroughs don't happen on any timetable we can predict, and that part of the um, the, the goal needs to be uh, lots of incremental wins that sort of set the stage for bigger breakthroughs and create some momentum and that show that our our philosophy is one that is, is hopeful and inclusive and should be joined by people of, of good faith, especially as they see that some of the um, extreme ideology, ideologies around them are in fact um, not working for uh, those sort of universal goals. So I'm very hopeful that while we're in a difficult moment, that the long-term trajectory of our freedom movement has never been stronger and these headwinds that we're now facing actually are going to present some some real opportunities for positive change.
0: So in the midst of an election polarized season, people can get a book of hope. They can go to atlasnetwork.org. It's called Freedom Movement. It's past, present, and future. Brad Lips, thank you so much for coming on and giving us a little bit of hope today. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And thank you for joining us. If you like what you're hearing on She Thinks, then you won't want to miss out on the latest news from Independent Women's Forum. Sign up for mobile inside alerts and email updates by going to iwf.org. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks conversations. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.